Good morning, church. I'd like to read you a line that we just sang. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Church, we ought to remind each other of God's mercy shown to us in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The salvation offered to us by faith. But when we remind each other, we need to remind each other exactly what it meant for God to be merciful to us. That is, God in his mercy saves us. But what does he save us from? We don't fully understand his mercy until we answer that question. God in his mercy saves us from himself. His justice, his wrath against the wicked and the ungodly. The wickedness and ungodliness that we all lived in before we knew Jesus. The same wickedness and ungodliness that he now calls us to renounce as he commands us to turn to Christ in faith and to seek to live a life of holiness in response. The wickedness and ungodliness that you may be living in right now if you don't know Jesus. When we point one another back to the cross, like this line says, we must remember one another, we must remind one another that the refuge offered there is refuge from God's justice that we deserve as sinners against the sovereign holy God. As we've learned all throughout Jonah 1 and 2, sin's penalty is death, and that is death at the hands of the sovereign God. And when we remember this, it should not cause us to flee from God, but rather to draw closer to him. Our hearts should swell with worship as we marvel at how great a price God paid on our behalf to redeem us from the hell that we justly deserve for our sin against him, the holy, sovereign God. If we forget this, we forsake a depth of joy, of gratitude. We lose something of just how amazing it is that a righteous God could save wicked people. Maybe you're here today and you've never been called wicked. I'm sorry I had to be the first one. Not sorry because I called you wicked, but sorry because you didn't know. With that being said, however, you're in good company. We are all wicked. But what we do with that knowledge right now is a matter of life and death. If we just continue in our wickedness, we will face the justice of God. Fortunately, we learn a little something about how God deals with wicked people this morning. We find that there is actually good news for wicked people like you and like me. We're continuing our series through the book of Jonah with Jonah chapter 3. Please turn there if you have a Bible or on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Blue Pew Bible that's under your chair or in the chair in front of you. That is on page 774. Now, if you're new to the Bible, really quick, the Bible's made of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 24 in the New Testament. We are in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. That is the promise and its stipulations that God made to mankind about how we should act toward him and how he were to act towards us. One of those books in the Old Testament is Jonah. 
a record of an event in the life of one of God's prophets. God's prophets spoke on his behalf to the people of Israel, and here we learn they spoke to other nations as well. If you look, the big number there is a chapter. We're going to be in chapter 3, and all the little numbers are verses. We're going to read all of the verses in the chapter. The original Hebrew that was written doesn't have these, but our English Bibles do, so let's take advantage of them. Would you read along with me in Jonah chapter 3? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to Nineveh, and he did not do it. The book of Jonah teaches us who God is, what he is like, whose side he is on anyway. As we've been making our way through this narrative, I've sought to pose a main point for each chapter as it relates to the entire narrative as a whole. And in light of that, I believe the main point of Jonah 3 within the entire book is this. The sovereign God is a God of justice and mercy. The sovereign God is a God of justice and mercy. Since Jonah 1, we've seen our sovereign God pursuing Nineveh. But the question that we as readers have all been asking since his command to Jonah is for what purpose? Is he seeking to destroy Nineveh or something else? Jonah didn't seem to be too fond of the idea that Yahweh might do anything other than destroy them. And we saw him run from the call initially. But here, church, in Jonah 3, we have our answer. The sovereign God, all along, in control of every detail, from the least to the greatest, accomplishes exactly what he set out to do. All throughout this journey so far, each scene of salvation teaching us a lesson 
including this one here as God relents from the disaster he had said he would do to Nineveh. Yahweh was pursuing a wicked nation. And to our surprise, it was not that he might exact his perfect justice on the wicked, and he would be right to do so, but that he would extend his mercy to them. The sovereign God is a God of justice and mercy. We'll break our text into three points this morning. The first is this, the wickedness of the wicked. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, beginning of 3. The wickedness of the wicked. At the beginning of chapter 3, call it divine deja vu, we almost see an identical call from Jonah 1. Jonah has gone through the ringer, running away from the word of the Lord, just to find himself back where it all began. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. To even acknowledge that Jonah has survived his flight away from God is one thing. But for him to have received word from Yahweh again should come as quite a surprise for us as the readers, knowing just how far Jonah had gone before the Lord swallowed him up and brought him back to his senses. But the Lord does two things with this. First, it puts us on the edge of our seat with the question, what will Jonah do this time? And it also re-emphasizes the reality that the Lord wanted his word to get to Nineveh. And ever since chapter 1, verse 1, we've known that he wanted to use Jonah to deliver it. God would accomplish his purposes, and no thing and no one could thwart what he had set out to do. But notice the language shift from what the Lord says in his first call to his second call. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. When we walk through Jonah chapter 1, we, we looked at the ambiguity of that phrase, which could have set Jonah to flight. But here the Lord says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. No ambiguity here. No opportunity for Jonah's interpretation or consideration. It doesn't matter what Jonah hears, what he thinks should happen or should not happen to Nineveh. At this point, the Lord is clear to Jonah that Jonah is to speak the speech that God gives him. Nothing more, nothing less. The exact word that Yahweh says, whatever that word might be, whether a word of destruction or something else. But Jonah doesn't know. God hasn't said it yet. Up to this point in Jonah's mind, it could probably go either way. But for us as readers, however, judging by the Lord's saving the mariners and saving Jonah, we could assume just what might happen in Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 3, increases the suspense using the same exact language as chapter 1, verse 3. So Jonah arose. But what was he going to do this time? Was he going to flee to Tarshish? No. Thankfully, this time he obeys. And he does what Yahweh commands him to do. He goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, I do think there is a point to be made here about the necessity of immediate obedience when it comes to God's commands. When God commands you to do something, you must obey. No questions asked. No second guessing. What he says in his word goes, and we should not hesitate. The Lord Jesus commands us in his 
in his word, in, in, for example, in Matthew 4, verses 17 through 19, to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and by extension to his disciples, to follow him. Repent and follow me, Jesus commands. When the Lord of light commands his creation, we must obey. What commands from the Lord's word have you been hesitant on? Whatever they are, I would encourage you to trust him and obey him. Obey what he commands you from his word. Not to linger, but to step forward in obedience. But here in context, the immediate purpose of the text isn't to present Jonah's obedience as some standard, an example to follow, or to teach us a lesson of morality through Jonah. Though it is an appropriate application to obey God, just like Jonah does, that's not the point. Rather, the immediate purpose is to point our eyes back to where the Lord's word is going. Where is it going? To Nineveh. Because it is there in Nineveh where we are yet again going to learn something about God. This book has been teaching us something about God, and we see here where we need to go to learn it. Verse 2, Nineveh. Verse 3, Nineveh. Now, Nineveh. I haven't provided much historical background about Nineveh up to this point, but I do want to share something with you because to make the point of Jonah 3 clear, to feel the punch that it does intend to land, we need to know a little something about that great city. Nineveh was an extremely wicked city and an extremely wicked nation, Assyria. Assyrians took pride in the ways by which they murdered people and the ways that they enslaved people to the point that they enjoyed it as if it was some kind of game who could torment someone the worst. And believe me when I tell you, the records of these accounts are graphic. Images that depict the things these people did to other human beings more horrific than anything you and I have ever seen in our entire lifetime. Can you imagine the depravity of mind? Can you imagine the evil that must reside in the hearts and minds of men who commit such atrocities even to women and children? Can you imagine how you would feel if a conquering nation were to invade our country and this is what they were known for, how fast would your heart beat? How heavy would the adrenaline in your veins pump as you saw their convoys lining up down your driveway prepared to come into your home and take the lives of you and your children in any way that they could enjoy it? Do you feel it now, church? Let me ask you this. In your mind, what do those kinds of people deserve? Justice. They deserve justice. In God's progressive revelation, that is God's revealing himself to us over time, how he, who he is and how he functions, God had revealed up to this point in Jonah's lifetime the stark difference between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. It can be seen clearly in the Psalms of King David, which Jonah would have had. Listen to a few. Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 11, verses 5 through 7. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. According to these Psalms, Jonah would have known them. There's only one fate for the wicked. The wicked will receive God's justice. And his justice is the fullness of his anger and wrath kindled against them through judgment in hell. This is justice for the wicked. One problem we run into as fallen human beings is we tend to treat wickedness subjectively. Because, if, because of this, we find ourselves in positions where we give X number of years in prison for double homicides, taking the life of a mother and the child she's pregnant with, while we regularly allow mothers to murder their own children in utero penalty-free, even to the point of praise. We treat wickedness subjectively. When we look in judgment on the violent parents who physically beat their children, while we overlook the anger in our speech when we respond to ours. We treat wickedness subjectively when we say thieves should get what they rightfully deserve, but we covet the things we don't have in our hearts. We treat it subjectively when we're revolted that this spouse would commit adultery and leave their home for another while we fantasize about what life would be like in another home with another person, with another family, a different life than this. Or we look with our eyes to someone else's spouse, someone else's life, someone else's family and feel the same way. We treat wickedness subjectively when we say things like, I make mistakes, but I'm not that bad. Or, I've messed up, but they've. Or, I'm, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't. I, they, they, they. Have you ever said these things? Have you ever thought these things? Do you think this way right now? Wickedness is not only what we see on the outside. The Lord Jesus himself has taught us that all wickedness comes from the same place, the heart. Some people just do a better job of hiding it than others. We must realize that wickedness doesn't work itself in. Wickedness works itself out and wickedness should not be measured subjectively. Wickedness must be measured objectively. The moment we pit two wicked people against each other and ask who deserves justice the most, we cross the line of injustice. And praise be to God who judges with objective, perfect justice. Do this for me. Take the Ninevites in one hand. Take yourself in the other. Does God's objective, 
perfect justice look like, you think? Well, it depends on what standard you measure wickedness by. Should we measure wickedness in light of other wickedness? No. The only way to appropriately measure wickedness is in light of God's perfect righteousness. And if we did this, then we would quickly come to the psalmist's conclusion in Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If the Lord should mark our iniquities, church, we would quickly find that we are all wicked. And as wicked, sinful human beings, God's justice left to ourselves, awaits for us just like it awaited for Nineveh, just like it awaits for the rest of the world right now. But look around you and what do you see? Every one of us has breath in our lungs. Every one of us is alive right now. Every one of us has heard this call that God's justice is coming, but he has not brought it upon us yet because we're here. In this room, which means we shouldn't delay. We should turn to him by faith because in him alone there's forgiveness. We turn to him by faith when we put our faith and trust in Jesus because it was Christ's blood poured out on the cross that can wash away the darkest stain of wickedness. Murderers, adulterers, coveters at heart and with the hands all can be set free and made new at the foot of the cross. The worst of the worst, the chief of all sinners, has a place at the Lord's table through the Lord Jesus Christ and the renewal of his Holy Spirit. What shall we say? It is God who justifies, who can condemn. Yet, it does remain true that the wicked will perish. Psalm 7, verse 11 through 12, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. If a man does not repent. But what happens if he does? How do you expect the wicked city like Nineveh or the most wicked person you can think of that you know right now, how do you expect them to respond to this word from God through an Israelite prophet. That brings us to point number two, the just response to justice. The just response to justice. That's the end of verse three through verse nine. Let's look at the author's description of Nineveh, beginning back in verse three. Your Bible probably has two footnotes associated with this verse meant to help you understand the translation a little better, but I want to clear some of this up for us. This book, Jonah, is full of simple vocabulary, if you hadn't already noticed it. It is written like this so that the narrative as a whole would flow and reveal the intended meaning, not the individual words itself, necessarily. Several words are repeated over and over. The verb for call out, we've seen multiple times. The word for evil or distress, we see throughout the letter. And this word right here in chapter 3, verse 3, the word great has been used in a variety of ways, describing Nineveh as the great city, the great wind, the great tempest, the great fish. Same word here in chapter 3, verse 3. 
exceedingly great. The word-for-word translation of that verse I want to share with you is this. Nineveh was a great city to God three days travel. Looks a little bit different. But what does that mean? It's is it talking about Nineveh's size, like some have presumed? No, I don't think so. Based on the context, I think the word great, the word gadol, can also carry with it the idea of importance. So I would submit to you, we should translate it, important. Nineveh was an important city to God in terms of the city's prominence before God. One commentator points out Joshua 10.2 as a good example. This is what it says. Because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. Well, he continues that word great could be used in connection with a city to indicate significance rather than its size. And Gibeon was, in fact, physically rather small because it was less than two and one-half acres in extent. So understanding that this is referring to Nineveh's importance, helps us to understand the next phrase, three days travel. What does that mean? This is crucial to catch, church. If we aren't talking about the size of Nineveh, but its importance, then this phrase here, three days travel, would be a reference to how long one was expected to visit within the city, not how long it took to get across the city. Nehemiah 2.6 uses the word this way. The king asked Nehemiah, how long will you be gone? Same word is used as travel. But why would he care how far Nehemiah has to go? He doesn't care how far he has to go. He cares how long he's going to be gone. So how long are you going to visit with your people, Nehemiah? That would give him the answer that he needed. So this, this teaches us that Jonah didn't just show up and start shouting in the streets. In ancient Nineveh, you wouldn't just let a random person inside your city walls. It was a prominent city on the Tigris River. Probably a lot coming in, a lot going out. Lots of trading, lots of business. A three-day visit for Jonah basically meant coming into customs for a day. Doing his business for another day if they let him. And then making his way out the third day. And church, this is where we see the point. If Jonah would have found himself in Nineveh customs during this time, historically it's likely he would have already had a hearing. He would have had a formal hearing as to why he was there, what his business was, how long he would be staying. He would have had to tell them where he was from and what he was doing. And finally, that he had a message from God. Day one, audience. And that's what we see here in verse 4. Jonah began his visit. On the first day of his visit, he calls out. And church, look at what he calls out. Verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We don't see it in English. But just like the Lord's first word to Jonah, this second word is full of ambiguity as well. The word overthrown can signify being conquered or receiving judgment. That's how we can see it here. But it can also mean a reversal or a change of heart. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will have a change of heart. Nevertheless, Jonah was told to speak God's speech, so he does. And what happens? On the first day of three days, 
Nineveh has a change of heart. Nineveh believes God. Everything we just talked about, about the importance of Nineveh, how a visit required three days, it was all to set up the tea for the news to both Jonah and to the readers, surprised that Nineveh responded on the very first day. After all this buildup, the running, the storming, the drowning, the fishing, Jonah gets to Nineveh, delivers the message, and they didn't even need Jonah's three days. They didn't even need God's 40 days. They heard the word and they repented from the greatest to the least of them in dust and ashes right then and right there. This wicked city and that wicked nation repented at the first sign of God's justice. And not only do the commoners repent, word gets to this king of Nineveh and he repents. Look at the movement in in the language in verse 6. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes, repentant. Much like Jonah's obedience, there is a point to be made here about the necessity of quick repentance. Whether you're hearing the call for the first time or the thousandth time, if we find ourselves at any time living our lives in sin, we must confess our sins to God as fast as possible. Repent of those sins, meaning have a change of heart, turn away from those sins, and turn to God in faith. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. If this is something that you've never heard of or considered before, please talk to anyone you've seen up here this morning. We would love to talk to you about what it means to repent, to trust Jesus. But again, that's not the immediate purpose of the text. Even the response of the Ninevites is teaching us something about God. Look at verses 8 and 9. End of verse 8. What does he say? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? The just response to God's justice is first to acknowledge that God has every right to exact his righteous justice on the wicked just as he says he will. The Ninevites, in other words, did not presume upon God's kindness. Instead, they repented and they called out as they knew they should and they left the judgment to God. Who knows? It seems to suggest that they really recognized their wickedness and they really understood the weightiness. They really understood what their wickedness deserved. But most of all, they really understood that they should receive from God's hand what God has said he would do. Do you view God's justice that way? Can you stand with Nineveh and say, God, you are the righteous judge and you alone have the right to exact your penalty however you see fit. This is the just response to justice. To agree with God. To say that God is right because he is. He is right in whatever he does. He's right in whatever he commands. He is right when we disobey to demand payment for our sins committed against his holy name and he is right to exact justice immediately. But God is also right 
to stay his hand of justice for the sake of showing us his mercy. Even when word got to Nineveh, look at how long he gave them. 40 days. Remember how you felt when we were talking about the wickedness of Nineveh? How you felt if someone was going to come into your home? When would you say they deserve judgment? Immediately? Right then? God would have given Nineveh 40 days to think about the word that he sent them. Nineveh was 500 miles away from Israel. Which means however long between the vomiting of the fish, Jonah's on the dry ground, to the word coming back to Jonah, God gave them that time. From the time Jonah got the word to the time he got 500 miles to Nineveh, God gave them that time. Even with all that time in the midst of all their evil and wickedness that they regularly lived in, carried out, God gave them yet 40 more days. Mercy. God's mercy. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, says this. God does not always act with justice. Sometimes he acts with mercy. Mercy is not justice, but neither is it injustice. Injustice violates righteousness. Mercy manifests kindness and grace and does no violence to righteousness. We may see non-justice in God, which is mercy but we never see injustice in God. How can God do this? How can God be both just, exacting the perfect judgment against unrighteousness and wickedness, while also being merciful, letting the wicked continue without penalty for a time? I think the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter help us answer this question. First, Paul in Romans 2, 4-5 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And later in chapter 9, verses 22 through 23, Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Peter in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That word wishing means desire. In God's perfect righteousness, the Lord can both desire for all to reach repentance and provide the mercy to do so while also exacting perfect judgment on those who don't. 
Not only is the just response to justice one of agreement with God alone as judge, but the just response to justice is one of repentance toward God. For this is the very reason why he stays his hand of justice, in order to show us his mercy. And in light of his mercy, we're given opportunity that we might repent. We saw this in the storm hurled at the sailors. Justice was not immediate. God was patient. We saw it in the, in the fish. Justice was not immediate. God was patient. And we see it now with these wicked people. For them, God truly shows no partiality. Justice was not immediate. God was patient. And he's patient with us but his patience is for a purpose. Which leads us to our final point. God will relent when the wicked repent. God will relent when the wicked repent. In verse 10, God does something that we have never expected. God saw their repentance and he did not destroy them. He relented of the disaster. It says the same thing twice to acknowledge the magnitude of what just happened. Look, they repented. They turned from evil. God relented. He did not destroy them. God stays his just hand and relents of the disaster. Mercy. God relents. But how could he? How can a perfect, sovereign, immutable, that means unchanging God, relent? How can he say he will bring judgment, but then show mercy. But even more shocking than that, how could he show mercy to this wicked of a city? The answer lies in how God's divine warnings work. God reveals more clearly through the prophet Jeremiah who came after Jonah. In Jeremiah 18, he says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Hear the words of Ezekiel, who also prophesied around the same time as Jeremiah. He says, And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. It is perfectly consistent with the person and character of God to threaten judgment, to give clear explanation ahead of time as to what that judgment will entail, to provide a time period and mercy for the people to consider the consequences of their actions and to choose to respond positively to God's word and then to relent if that happens. Because this is exactly who he is and what he says he will do. He doesn't change his mind last minute. He is patient and kind through and through. He gives his warning meant to stir the heart, to cause reflection and contemplation, to force us to ask the hard question, will I receive God's mercy right now and turn to God and live? Or will I continue in my wickedness and receive his justice? It is right and good 
for God to do so. He remains unchanging, his character impeccable, his righteous justice intact, while the glory of his merciful hand shines forth and beckons the sinner, come, turn from your wickedness and come. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, but come to me and you will not receive my wrath. Church, the mercy of God is seen in the reality that the righteous can't live by their righteousness. And the wicked are in full dependence on God's mercy. We all fall short of the glory of God by our own merit destined for hell. If you think you will get to heaven for being a good person, the only thing that awaits you on the other side of death is God's justice. If you think that this life is all there is and you live life in pursuit of whatever wickedness you can enjoy, then the only thing that awaits on the other side of death is God's justice. Friend, if we continue in our wickedness, the only thing that awaits every single one of us on the other side of death is God's justice. God's wrath in hell against the ungodly if we stand by our own merit. But our good God orchestrated it this way in his sovereignty so that his mercy would be on full display to those who are perishing. For people as wicked as the Ninevites, for people as wicked as you and me, from the wicked who find themselves in line on death row to the wicked who hate their brother in their heart, from the greatest to the least of us, we are wicked, but God alone is the Savior who by his mercy has given us his message in time. He's given us opportunity, you and I, even now, to hear his words of warning and not forsake his message of mercy. The message that God is the just and the justifier. The message that our righteousness can't outweigh our wickedness and earn us a spot in heaven. But God sent his perfect son who had no wickedness to his name, perfect and holy. God relents from bringing his justice on the wicked when the wicked turn to Christ by faith because it's at the cross where God's justice and his mercy meet. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Do you know what that means? It means that the promises of justice God made to the wicked, he exacted that justice fully and finally on Jesus Christ for those who trust in him by faith. When we look at the cross, this is what we see. My wickedness on his shoulders, the payment paid in full. Christ died for the ungodly, you and me, the righteous for the unrighteous, you and me. And he is just to do so because it is there at the cross where his divine forbearance reached its fullness. This is his final sign of mercy to a lost and dying world headed for destruction as 2 Peter has shown us. He brings meaning to Christ's words when he tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He has the authority to do it because he himself loved his enemies to his death. It brings meaning to Christ's words when he tells us to love one another. If this is the love with which he loved his enemies, church, Marvel and rejoice. How much more does he love us? How infinite of a love, how secure his love, how satisfying and everlasting could his love for his children be? And if this is his love for us, how much ought we love one another? The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. If you're here today 
kids included, and you've never trusted in Christ, will you follow the example of Nineveh and believe God's promise? Church, marvel at the glories of God seen in the justice and mercy poured out on the cross. Meditate, think on this for all that it is. Speak to your soul when you're tempted to disbelieve. Speak to your soul. Soul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. God relents when the wicked repent because he himself was the one who paid their penalty. And he paid it in full. Exhausted it. Exhausted it on the cross then so that you and I who trust in Jesus now can look forward to the blessings of eternity with him, the glory that will be revealed. Suddenly, after realizing the depths of the wickedness, our wickedness, that brought hell upon us, the joy of heaven is ever before us. And it only tastes sweeter than it did before. Thank you, Jesus.